<clears throat> Exodus 9 is where we will start. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words and for all that you are doing in the world. We thank you, Father, for the faith that you have given us in your word. And I pray that we would be good students of it. Thank you for the creation of our minds and our ability, even though limited, to reason and to engage with the text of Scripture. Help us to be wise and right in our judgments. and Pray, Father, that you would help us to appreciate what you are doing in this world in the course of the entirety of human history. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Exodus 9, in verse number 16, in just a moment, and I just have been thinking once again, when, when I thought that it would be beneficial to undertake the subject matter of Providence, and doing that primarily by using one book on the subject, I expected primarily to be <clears throat> taken into many pieces of minutia because that seems to be the way that I think about God's providence, that something that God provides <clears throat> today, <clears throat> excuse me, or denies Today that I really want and I don't understand in 10 or 15 years I see how that God was using it and his purposes were being accomplished and that is genuine and legit part of the providence of God. I wouldn't take any exception to that. I did not think about it in terms in the in the terms in which I am presenting the material as I have been working through the book and I've actually thought a couple of times if Perhaps I should just make an exit and move on to something else. But I, I trust and hope that we will, that I will find it and that we will find it to be very beneficial. So that what God is ultimately doing is working all things towards really one end. And he, is, he has never wavered in that. And so this morning I want to return and just kind of walk through a little bit of an expansion of where we left off last week. Um, in an attempt to address a couple of questions they came up with reference to last week to whether or not I will do that effectively. But um, we, last week, we, our attention was on the fact that the exodus, the historical exodus, is a, not just a historical event and not just a really cool thing where the waters were parted, but it is actually given tremendous biblical significance as a template for God's working with people all the way through human history. And we get a glimpse of that in Exodus chapter 9, in verse number 16, in which God is explaining to Pharaoh through Moses, in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up. In other words, many perhaps human reasons why Pharaoh is Pharaoh. He certainly was going to be born into it. Um, He may have 
participated in some intrigue to get or to maintain his position. Um, But God's assessment is, For this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. So, and that word declared means the Bible, when the Old Testament translated it, it always, almost always translates it with one of two words, either to tell, as in to just tell, or to number, to recount. And so this is what God wants. God wants his deeds to be told and retold and told and retold throughout the earth. And one of the questions that came up was then just what is God getting at, you know, in in his name? Is it just simply, you know, do we just mention his name? Is that enough? enough? And of course, they didn't think that. And I don't think that either. But the name becomes, right, the the name of Jehovah. Um, The name becomes representative then of all that God is and all that God wants and all that God does. Um, Jesus, of course, is the word. And we know, I'm assuming that most of us know that the Greek word is the word logos, from which we get our English word logo. Right? And when you look at the logo, you know that you are looking at the representation of the entirety of the brand. And so that's a little bit of the way that the word name is used. A Roman, even in the New Testament, Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're not looking for people simply to mechanically recite the name Jehovah, right? But people who recognize all that the name Jehovah implies. Or, and let me back, back, walk back that because I don't think any of us yet understand all that the name implies. But to have some comprehension of what God is stating and explaining and to have some belief and trust in it is to call then upon the name of the Lord. Um, And I wanted to cover that because, you know, my my wife and I had a rather extended conversation this week about Rahab and what, what Rahab knew. And, of course, we don't really know all that Rahab knew. We have, you know, just a very brief recounting that, and it's kind of fascinating, folks. I mean, right, the recounting is that everybody, if you go go to, to the book of Joshua, her position is everybody knows what God has done. But nobody, nobody believes enough to appeal to him for help. But I'm appealing to you guys. I'm appealing to you as his people to spare me. And that is, that is her request. And that is the request that is granted and is counted to her as faith. And, and so just, again, without getting into the providence, folks, biblically and historically, people are responsible to respond positively to what God has revealed to them. Um, and, and this is why we, we want to be very careful, okay? I mean, I'm going to teach you the Bible from a dispensational viewpoint that, that God has worked in specific ways, in specific times, 
and particularly that each that Israel and the church are completely separate entities and this doesn't interrupt God's plan or chop it up into unmanageable pieces but is actually all part of the whole but part and parcel of that many dispensationalists teach that in the Old Testament you are saved by keeping the law and that's not true um, that is one of the errors that is attached to that right Anybody who has ever been saved from Adam in the Garden of Eden to the very last person that is saved is only going to be saved by the work of Christ. What God tells them about that is going to vary at times, but it is all going to be the result of Christ becoming the human sacrifice for sin. And so no act of human works ever is going to bring about salvation. Abraham, right? God came to Abraham and said, here's what I'm going to do, right? You come with me, and I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to make your name great, and you're going to be a blessing. And Abraham said, okay, I will go. And God counted that to him for righteousness. He didn't work his way to righteousness, but he believed what God told him. We believe what God has told us. I would hope that none of us think that now that we have a completed New Testament in our hands and the whole Bible story that we know everything there is to know about God. You don't have, it's not possible for us to know everything there is to know about God. But it is not required that we know everything there is to know. It is required that we believe what God has told us that is true about him, of course, he's not going to lie, but <clears throat> right, people believe lies about God. But <clears throat> over the course of history, God has revealed his plans in incremental ways, and part of the deliverance of the law is a big part of that, heavy with symbolism, but it never saved anybody. So anyway, <clears throat> um, so to, to go back... <clears throat> To the text. What did Rahab know? She believed the Lord. We know that. Um, she believed that God had parted the Red Sea, that God had destroyed the Egyptians, that God was coming for them, and she begged for mercy, and she was granted that mercy and faith, and that's what we know. And it is highly unlikely that she had any clear knowledge of Jesus and substitutionary vicarious sacrifice and the blood atonement, but she believed what the Lord had told her. Okay, so here's our starting point then with reference to providence. Right? God is going to do this work, and he is going to memorialize this work, this exodus, so that his name will be known and declared to all of the nations that this event will become the benchmark both of his power and of his purpose. What is he doing and why is he doing it? Um, <clears throat> so if you will indulge me, because I know that some folks are, you know, really work to get the Bible dates, and there's, of course, a lot of academic discussion about the dates, and I'm looking here at my always or often reliable Schofield Bible, which sets the date of Exodus 9 at 1491 B.C., but I'm just going to talk in general numbers. Somewhere around 1450 B.C. is the Exodus. That would be the, that would be the historical date. Let's just put it on a calendar, 1450 
B.C. If you will jump way ahead to Psalm 105. And by the time you have turned in your Bibles ahead to Psalm 105, you have turned ahead about 400 years. David is the king, and again, these are just approximations. David is the king. This is not his lifespan, but David is the king about 1010 to 970 B.C. We know that he reigned 40 years. Actually, we know that he reigned 40 years and six months. 40 years is the number. We also know that David wrote Psalm 105 because 1 Chronicles 16.7 tells us that he did. We're not going to look at that, but you can make the note. First, First Chronicles 16.7 attributes Psalm 105 to David. <clears throat> so here we are now, 400 years after the Exodus, which, let's see, what would that put us? 16.22? So the, the Jamestown colony is in existence and we are still British citizens, and we're still happy to be British citizens, and that far back into the past. Jump down to verse number 42 of Psalm 105. Talking about the Lord, for he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant And he brought forth his people with joy and his chosen with gladness and gave them the lands of the heathen and they inherited the labor of the people that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise ye the Lord. So 400 years later, this is still a benchmark, an anchor point. It still becomes a frame of reference, but it's much more than just a frame of reference. It is is the theological underpinning to the existence of the nation of Israel. If you look at the next psalm, and we don't know who wrote Psalm 106. We know that Psalm 105 and 106 kind of work together. They are both historical in nature. Psalm 105 is a psalm of gratitude. Psalm 106 is a psalm of penitence. So in Psalm 105, we're looking backwards historically and celebrating God's great works. And in Psalm 106, we're looking backward historically and lamenting Israel's constant rebellion. Which, by the way, folks, is a, is a dominant theme in the Exodus. And we will, we will return to this. Frequently, the, the ongoing rebellion of Israel is a critical part of the Exodus story. So Psalm 106 and verse number 6, we have sinned with our fathers, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedly. Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. 
And if you go back and read that, they did. They, got, they, they started to leave Egypt, and then they saw the Egyptians coming, and then they all stopped and did what they so often did. They collectively revolted. It's a fascinating little episode there in the lives of the Israelites. Moses then appeals to the Lord, and the Lord says, basically, why are you standing here complaining? Go! And so on they go in the Red Sea's part. But they provoked him at the sea, verse number 7, even at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power to be known. He rebuked the sea also, and it was dried up, so he led them through the depths as through the wilderness, and he saved them from the hand of him that hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy, and the waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then believed they his words. They sang his praise. So again, folks, the Exodus becomes a dominant, not just, right? it's not just like the Declaration of Independence or the Constitutional Convention or the burning of the Capitol at the War of 1812. It's not just a symbolic event that has meaning to a group of people. It's not just like remembering 9-11 Again, I, there's perhaps a better word, but, but the Exodus is simply loaded with theological implications, not only for Israel, but for everybody. All of us who relate to God have clear, distinct connections to the Exodus. There is a sense in which we are, I, don't, I want to be very careful how I, how I put this, but we are, we are participants in our own exodus. Not the exodus that we choose, but what God is doing at the exodus, he has been doing for people from the beginning of time and will continue to do through the end of time. God saves sinners. That's Psalm 106, 6 and 7. We have sinned. We provoked the Lord. God saves sinners for the sake of his name. That's verse number eight. Right? This is, again, folks, and I realize that I beat on this drum a lot, but, but again, we've just got to stop believing all the social media posts about that basically come across as if God wouldn't know what to do if he didn't save us. Right? I mean, it's it's... It's the, it's the Charles Stanley approach to the Bible. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. When the reality is, is that God saves people primarily because it makes him look good. And the only way that saving people really makes God look good is when people understand that they never deserve to be saved in the first place. And this is part of the Exodus story. And because people realized that they didn't deserve to be saved, and yet they were miraculously, mercifully saved, they tend to be very grateful for being saved. 
so that we fast forward into the church age, right? We are to the praise of His glory. We are to the praise of His glory. Let me just read to you this, this. I just took this quote out of Piper's book. The gladness of Israel and her gracious, mighty, delivering God is the echo of God's exodus glory. God's aim to be glorified and His aim for His people to be satisfied in that glory are not separate aims. Israel's being satisfied in the God of the Exodus is the essence of how the God of the Exodus is glorified in Israel. That is the ultimate goal of God's providence that we are seeing again and again. It isn't that we're not satisfied and it isn't that we're not recipients of good. It is that God is glorifying himself in saving rebellious people, sinful people. Jump ahead, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 63. So about 1450, we have the actual exodus. And about 1050, somewhere in there, we have Psalm 105 written by David. 700 years after the Exodus, somewhere around 740, that's when Isaiah wrote. So 700 years, an amount of time that is hard for us to envision what was going on in North America 750 years ago. Isaiah chapter 63 and verse number 10. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him, that led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm dividing the water before them, to make himself an everlasting name that led them through the deep as an horse in the wilderness that they should not stumble. As a beast goeth down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. So thou didst lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. And that word, I just want to take a minute and point that out, and perhaps your study Bible does. The, the Hebrew, the normal Hebrew word for glory is actually a word that means heavy or weighty. And the idea is, right, it's really kind of tied to the currency of the day that gold and silver are heavy metals and their value is in their weight. And in fact, the, the, the Jewish monetary system is a system of weight. The shekel was a measurement of weight, not a dollar denomination. And so usually when you read the word glory, that's the word that you're reading, the word that refers to heaviness or value. But that is not the word that is used here. It is actually a word here that refers to beauty or to something being beautiful so that God has made for himself not a weighty name, not a valuable name, but a, but a pretty name, an attractive name, a name that people would commend. And again, Paul points out to the Thessalonians that 
there is coming a day when Jesus will return to be admired in his saints. That in a very real sense, he will be our hero. That we will admire him for who he is and what he has done. But again, you'll notice that the theme, folks, is, is the same. and it is, it is always the same theme. That God rescued a, an undeserving people for the sake of his name. And that the right response of those people was to be grateful to him for having saved them. And God then is glorified. Turn again, if you would, please, to Jeremiah, or turn ahead now, please, to Jeremiah chapter 32. So we're 400 years after the event, we're 750 years after the event. Now we're 900 years after the event. Isaiah is predicting the captivity that is going to come because the Israelites are perpetually disobedient. Jeremiah is living in it 150 years later. Jeremiah 32, verse number 16. Now when I had delivered the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch the son of Nereah, I prayed unto the Lord. And he was told to go buy a field and to make a purchase in the land. And, and the, the point of the purchase of the land was to, was to testify to God's promise that the Israelites would return to the land. Now when I delivered the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch the son of Neriah, I prayed unto the Lord, saying, O Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands, and recompensest the iniquity of thy fathers unto the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts, is his name. Great in counsel, mighty in work, for thine eyes are open unto all the ways of the sons of men, to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings, which hath set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day, and in Israel, and among other men, and has made thee a name, as at this day, and has brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand, and with a stretched out arm, and with great terror, and has given them this land, which thou didst swear to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and possessed it, but they obeyed not thy voice, neither walked in the law. They have done nothing of all that thou commandest them to do, Therefore thou hast caused all this evil to come upon them. Behold the mounts, they are come unto the city to take it, and the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans that fight against it, because of the sword, and of the famine, and of the pestilence. And what thou hast spoken is come to pass, and behold, thou seest it. And thou hast said unto me, O Lord God, buy thee the field for money, and take witnesses, for the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans." And came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He shall take it, and the Chaldeans that fight against this city shall come and set fire on this city and burn it with the houses upon whose roofs they have offered incense unto Baal. 
poured out drink offerings unto other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have only done evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have only provoked me to anger with the work of their hands, saith the Lord. For this city hath been to me as a provocation of mine anger and of my fury from the day that they built it even to this day, that I should remove it from before my face. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they have turned unto me the back and not the face, though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet have they not hearkened to receive instruction. But they have set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. And on it goes, through the end of the chapter, through the end of the book. But what is the Lord doing? Verse number 20, he is making for himself a name. This is his agenda, to make his name known. Now, go backwards, if you were, would, in our Bible. We're going backwards in our Bible to the book of Nehemiah, but we're going forward chronologically. 1450, the Exodus. 400 years later, we're writing a psalm about the Exodus. 750 years later, Isaiah is referencing the Exodus. The Babylonians are at the gate. Jeremiah is referencing the Exodus. The captivity comes. It lasts 70 years. And under Ezra and Nehemiah, the people begin to make their return. Verse number 1 of Nehemiah chapter number 9. Now in the 20 and 4th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them, and the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. And they stood in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one-fourth part of the day, and another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So half a day devoted to this religious activity. What were they doing? Right? They're, they are basically admitting to, taking responsibility for, and repenting of what had brought them to that place. And what brought them to that place, folks, was their perpetual disobedience. And it's a disobedience that looked like something. And it was a disobedience that looked like attraction to all of the other religions that they could find. I mean, you just can't find a place, folks, where they just really renounced Judaism. They were always Jews. And if you ask them who their God was, of course it's Jehovah. And if you ask them what their sacred book was, well, of course it's the Bible. And if you ask them how they live, well, they just brought all of the other cool stuff that they like from all the other religions in and worshiped them as well. And then when God chastised them for that by bringing famine and pestilence upon them, 
Then they only ramped up their rebellion by going, you know, we don't really like you very much because the other gods don't treat us like this. That is their history. That is their history. Now down to verse number 7. This is part of it, and, and I didn't read verse number four, but, but part of the half-day's activities are now being recounted to us. Verse number seven, Thou art the Lord who didst choose Abram and broughtest him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gavest him the name of Abraham and foundest his heart faithful before thee and madest a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, to give it, I say, to his seed, and has performed thy words, for thou art righteous, and did see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heardst their cry by the Red Sea, and showeth signs and wonders upon Pharaoh and all his servants, and all the people of his land, for thou knewest that they dealt proudly against them. So didst thou get thee a name as it is this day. And thou didst divide the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land and their persecutors thou threwest into the deeps as a stone unto the mighty waters. So now we're all these many years and we're through the captivity which is God's judgment upon them for their disobedience and they return to the land which is God's mercy to them. And the Exodus is still, again, folks, not just a historical note, but foundational to the existence of the nation and of understanding who they are and who God is. And so, folks, when we get to the end of the Old Testament, and somebody please make a note of this because I'm going to be done early today, and that never happens, and so I'm going to just celebrate that for a moment. Right, so when we come through the captivity and then we which we're not we haven't added this morning, we get into the to the book of Malachi, where we find the same old attitudes reflected in the same group of people, discontentment with the Lord, discontentment with his ways. Here are the truths that the Bible has been emphasizing that are ongoing truths, folks. We are are not exempted from the Exodus. The New Testament brings us right into that framework. Egypt was a sinful, arrogant people demonstrating their arrogance and their hostility to God. And you see that right there. I I, I started there because that's where we ended in, in Nehemiah 9.10, right, here's the Israeli-inspired perspective. Thou showed signs and wonders upon Pharaoh and on all his servants and on all the people of his land, for now knewest that they dealt proudly against them. Right? They lifted themselves up against God in part by lifting themselves up against God's people. And for that reason, they deserve God's judgment. Right, which is a legitimate question, right? I mean, I, I, I hope that this wouldn't create any huge controversy among us. But are we all comfortable here, folks, that unbelieving humanity deserves God's condemnation? 
that, that God is not being unreasonable or irresponsible to people when he consigns them to eternal flame, that people are getting only what they deserve. That is the Bible position. So when, when God parted the Red Sea, I mean, this is, of course, spectacular. It's a visual that we can all, you know, right? You can teach the visual to a five-year-old. The waters part, the ground dries, the people pass through, and just like that, the waters come crashing down, and the entire Egyptian army is destroyed and killed. And what did they get? Only what they deserved. That's all that happened to them. They just simply got what they deserved. They got what they deserved because they had resisted and rebelled against God and they had taken out that rebellion and that resistance by mistreating God's people. They got what they deserved. That's a recurring theme, right? God's justification for giving the land of Canaan to the Israelites is that the Amorites had defiled the land with their abominations and so he's going to purge the land by destroying all the people and he's going to establish a pure people in the land which brings me to the second point that the Old Testament has been developing that rebellion and hostility is not simply confined to the unbelieving uncovenant people but is actually the characteristic of the nation of Israel Look at, Nehemiah, look at Nehemiah chapter 9 again in verse number 13. Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai and spakest with, these, with them from heaven and gave them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and madest known unto them thy holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses thy servant, and gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought us forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and promised them that they should be go in to possess the land which thou had sworn to give them. I mean, to this point, folks, it's a pretty good deal, right? God came down and gave them good rules to live by, and food for their bellies, and water for their thirst, and land for their families. Verse number 16, but they and our fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks and hardened not to thy commandments and refused to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and forsookest them not. So Egypt was an arrogant, rebellious nation that got what it deserved. And Israel was an arrogant, rebellious nation that received mercy. Neither nation deserved God's mercy, folks. Do we understand? I mean, I think that we understand that. Do we understand that about us? That if God has been... right. However you want to think about this, as far back as you want to think about this, folks. The Bible is never going to allow you to think 
that at any level, in any way, in any remote distance of time past, that you're worthy of being saved. That I am worthy of receiving salvation. You know, folks, all it would have taken was a decision on God's part and the entire biblical narrative would have read read differently. God could have shown mercy to Pharaoh and crushed Israel out of existence. I mean, he's very pointed to Israel that it was just simply his choice. You can read it in the book of Deuteronomy. I think chapter 7... Deuteronomy chapter 7. It wasn't because of your size or any other thing. It was just that I, that I chose you out of his own purposes. So all of that, folks, to, to remind us that, that the way God acts is, right? All human beings deserve condemnation. Some are shown mercy. And when God shows them mercy, they are supposed to respond with gratitude. I mean, and I don't, I mean, that's what, that's what an appreciation for God's mercy creates, right? If this is not fabricated, when we understand that God has saved sinners who don't deserve to be saved, then they tend to be grateful for, for what has happened. So, 